Hello, you are tuned in to the Now Next podcast, which explores navigating your meaningful now and meaningful next. The voice you are currently hearing is Mary Claire. I am one of the co-hosts. I'm here with Drew. This is my voice. Amazing. And Sammy. (laughs) I also have a voice. Hooray! Welcome, everyone. We're so excited to continue conversation together on development in our vocation. And we've done conversations about like discovering and discerning. There's lots of D's in our 4D faith model, but today we're going to do development. Absolutely. One of the great things about development, right, is that it's not linear, that we have this chance to be engaging in our discernment practices, in our developmental practices, in our discovery practices, even in our decisions, but they're happening at the same time. So I'm really grateful that we get to dive into this development piece together with one of my very favorite authors. We are here with Lenny Duncan. Lenny Duncan is the unlikeliest of pastors. Formerly incarcerated and homeless, he is now a black preacher in the widest denomination in the United States the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Shifting demographics and shrinking congregations make all the headlines, but Duncan sees something else at work, drawing a direct line between the church's lack of diversity and the church's lack of vitality. The problems the ELCA faces are theological, not sociological, but so are the answers. We are so excited today to be talking about development, which is one of these four D's of vocational exploration. So we've talked about discovering opportunities for us. We've talked about discerning our values, but right now we're going to be engaging in this idea of development, which we mean as growing your gifts, growing the things that you have that are skills that we build these skills through practice, right? You don't get better at something unless you work it out. You know, the scripture talks about working out your faith with fear and trembling. I'm hoping we're not going to have too much fear and trembling, but on the other hand, sometimes we need to be jolted out of our complacency to really get to the place where we are developing new muscle new skills, new knowledge. And that's why we're so glad that Reverend Lenny Duncan is with us today, because that is part of his work and part of the spiritual gift that he is bringing to the church. I'm curious with all of us here today, if there are any experiences you have learning something new uh, that taught you something about yourself, some way that you developed as a person uh, that you taught something about yourself. I know for me, the first time that I ever conducted an interview was just out of the blue, my first semester of my first year of college. My advisor saw this opportunity for some event that Capital was holding, and she said, you have a good voice for radio, do this. And I think I blacked out at that point in time, and I just kind of rolled with the punches, and I had so much fun and found this skill that I had and that I've been developing throughout college that I wouldn't have done unless if she saw that skill in me and empowered me to start developing it. That's awesome. And I'm really glad that she said you have a good voice for radio because it's a very different kind of compliment than saying you have a good face for radio. And that's correct. Dr. Pike would never do (laughs) that. Super (laughs) correct. Right. That would be like the worst, right? If that was, if that was the reply, it's like, you should really get in the radio because like, you know, or something like like you're kind of ugly. So (laughs) yeah, like that would be brutal. I, you know, for me, and I know this is going to sound like I'm trying to relate to the kids because I'm old and washed up, but Like for me, it happened in seminary and seminary was not that long ago for me, right? Like you got to remember, like um, I wasn't able to access student loans due to my criminal record until Mm. well into my thirties, right? 
And so even though I had a mind for academia, I was unable to access it. Um, and so it wasn't until um, I really got my ass kicked on some papers by the uh, Dr. Heen at the Lutheran Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And he really beat my ass on a paper, man. And he was just like, you know, and basically at the end, he was like, you're really talented. You have a mind for this. But if you don't learn the basics of putting together a proper research paper, mm. and if you don't like work on like some like just some basic grammar stuff, and if you don't start using the structures that are typically used um, in theological circles, no one will take you seriously. Now, in a lot of ways, I've made a career out of not doing that, but I learned how not to do that by learning what Dr. Heen wanted to give me, right? And I struggled, I mean, really struggled with like, I don't understand why this is relevant, right? Like, I, you know, there were just so many things that, like, why are you beating me up for 20 points? Because like, you know, I didn't use footnotes. Like what is happening right now, right? Because I know this is like mind blowing, every seminarian thinks it's like mind-blowing amazing shit right but like i really felt like i was yeah. stumbling onto a few things and dr heen was in conversation with me he felt i was too but man just that just that pause of being like hey what you're doing is amazing but if you don't do it this way no one's ever going to pay attention to it so at least learn to do it this way so you can dismantle it later Mm. And I really think like a lot of development is that. And, you know, and like I resented Dr. Heen for weeks for that, you know, mm. and showed up in his class with an attitude and said, you know, where are the black writers, you fucker and stuff, like that, you know, and like, <laughs> but he was right. But he was right at the end of the day. So for me, that was the big thing was, you know, being in my 30s, knowing I was talented and knowing that like I had been deprived certain skills because mm -hmm. of socioeconomic stuff but still being willing to like, hey, but I got to learn this. Man, that's powerful. It reminds me of Dr. Rahul Deep Gill out at uh, Cal Lu talking about education. And he will talk specifically about this, the way we need to not just deconstruct, but dismantle some of the things that are involved in it. But also um, he, he gave this great reflection to campus ministers about the idea that we can't use the master's tools to tear down the master's house. And he gave a different approach to that saying it's in fact using how to use those tools, not the way the master intended them, but instead using it to reformat and reshape the tools. And that just like, it, it blew my mind the first time I heard you, it. You should that. write that down because you just described the black church and the mm -hmm. African di diasporic religions as a whole. It's all in that vein of, I'm going to take the tools that master gave me and I'm going to use them against him in every way I can. Because, you know, unfortunately, the document that, that master gave me when he brought me to this country was a liberation document. He mm. gave me scripture. Now, unfortunately, that can be used in many ways against empires. Those prayers, those stories, the power that's inherent in them, and the God of Israel actually has some rather harsh judgment against empire. And so that, you know, I mean, that that's really it. I mean, if you wanted to ask me what who where I land in the Lutheran space, I'm someone who mastered the Lutheran tools so I could use it against the master's house. Sammy, how about you? What have you learned in developing yourself? I'm going to say similarly with, with seminary, I think I continue to learn this about myself as I enter new spaces or where I feel that there's tension. Particularly entering seminary, I was so intimidated by my own perspective of my lack of knowledge of 
the Bible or the history of the church or just so many different things. And so I let that hinder me in my exploration and learning. And so like discovering that like, actually, no, like, you know, some of this stuff and you, you can engage in this, these things and recognizing that sometimes the narrative is I let myself hinder myself rather than being into it and exploring. And that's something that honestly, I, it's a cycle, right? Like I, I learn it and then I'm like, oh, you're doing the thing again. And then I have to remind myself again. And so noticing when that's coming up or where there's tension, even like in my body, I think is something I continue to like develop. Right. And that's the thing, you know, we, we talk about this whole lot as we are engaging in the pod is that this is not a linear process, right? Like development doesn't just happen in a vacuum that the developments will lead us to discoveries that discernment will lead us to decisions that these are things that happen over and again. And so this whole idea of developing in the examples that we've raised up is actually moving us deeper into ourselves, right? Learning things about ourselves that we want to hold on to more dearly, as well as things that we want to develop, want to change, want to transform. Another thing y'all have noticed on the pod is that we use all of these random themes around boats and sailing. Uh, And one of the things that this whole journey aspect gives us, because the idea of developing our vocations is something that is a journey, it takes time that it takes practice, that you don't learn how to sail. You don't learn how to do that without learning from somebody else. You have to practice. You have to engage in everything from learning how to tie knots and which ones to use to reading the weather and the surroundings. Each one of us brought up something that had something to do with the people surrounding us, the crew. We don't just develop our own skills, but we develop skills as community, right? We develop resilience as community. We develop passion and mission as community. But one of the things I'm really passionate about or that I'm learning, I think, to be passionate about is learning how to read the stars. Navigating in the world long before we had GPS, long before we had compass was people looking up at the stars and realizing there was something guiding us, that there were changes that we could read, that the seasons might even seem like the stars are in different places. But in fact, it meant that our position in relation to the stars was different. And so we had new and different information to gather. I think in our journeys, in our development of our own skills, there are stars in our lives, things that guide us home, whether it's the star that centers itself over Bethlehem, over the savior of the world, who is also a political and religious revolutionary, whether it's the North Star that guides us always constantly toward true North. So I'm curious if there are stars in your life, people who have helped you to develop your vocations that deserve a shout out, that deserve some knowledge or some affirmation, because without them, you wouldn't have developed into the person that you are today. I mean, I always say it takes a cast of thousands for Grace to happen. You know, even like Samantha, just now sharing a little bit about her development piece was Grace for me, right? Here I am 42 years old and have been involved in the prison industrial complex, have been homeless, um, you know, and have experienced all these things. And like, you know, just realizing that PTSD shows up in my body it takes a cast of thousands and there are people who are like who are key in the journey but i didn't know that like tim johansson who was my home pastor was just doing the average white boy suburban elca thing when he stood in front of the altar and he said that this is jesus's table and he makes no restrictions so neither do we Like, I didn't know that Tim was encultured into that, right? I thought that was just, like, mind-blowing shit, right? And it was 
a key piece for me. You know, like I didn't know that like the first time I sat in, in the doc, one of Dr. Cohn's lectures, you know, I didn't know A would be like one of his last or B. I wasn't exactly sure of his influence on black theology. I was new and exploring this stuff. And he wasn't like a North Star for me yet, like you were talking about. But like, you know, I ran into him, you know, the professors who were just kind to me, like John Paul and other folks, you know, who just like let me explore my bullshit and like mm-hmm. knew that like some of it wouldn't go anywhere. But like, we're just OK with me doing that or you know, the little ladies who would pick me up when I was hitchhiking and I was 12 years old and like, you know, pray over me in the name of Jesus Christ and give me a hundred bucks and say, God told them to pick me up that day. Like, I don't know like who these people are, like where they come from. Right. But I know my life is full of them. If I just open my eyes to it, Mm -hmm. right. That these angels, these spirits, these ancestors, um, and, and the Holy Spirit all work together in these ways to really sing what we talk about in worship, you know, the, the, the whole company of saints singing these hosannas and, and they're singing hosannas for you, right? It's not just, it's hosannas for the world. You are in the world, right? It's hosannas for our Lord, our Lord who loves the world, right? It's like, you know, it's all the same vibes, right? Like that energy. I could name hundreds of people and dozens who are incredibly influential. Mm-hmm. But if we just open our eyes, those teachers are everywhere. And, right. and, and that's in every tradition. As we're talking about development and these stars and how it's a communal experience, how does the culture around you affect your development and your skill building? I mean, it depends. There's two visions, really, that are mm-hmm. primarily you know, American visions right now, right? That's what my new book, United States of Grace, is talking about. My focus is shifting from that same power analysis I apply to the church in Dear Church. I'm applying that to my entire life in the United States of America or the Republic, you know, through the lens of my life. So the same kind of thing. But let's face it, there's two counter narratives in America. One of them has basically shifted from what we considered center-right values to now trying to install a white ethno state. And certainly not all the people who are attached to those center-right values, but they're using their narrative, their policies, their ideologies to draw even some of those folks who I believe a lot of them are good people of good conscience. Even some of the ones who voted for the current president, although Mm -hmm. most progressives will not admit that, it's true. They are good, kind people who are drawn into a narrative that they're now just starting to realize what the what that vision is. They're just realizing, in fact, in the last couple of weeks. But for some people, it was, and we need to respect them, or we'll never have conversation with them. The other vision is this neoliberal vision where basically it's not a white ethno state, but it's the same systemic racist policies that are causing the upheaval we're seeing everywhere, right? That what neoliberalism offers you is the same thing that you've been offered since the 60s. We'll take out the trash for you. You won't have to see us arrest the black people. You won't have to see us uh, systemically oppress the black people. You will not have to hear your president or a leader or a senator or a local mayor or a chief of police say something racist. We won't say it anymore. We'll just do it. And if you guys are cool with that, right? We'll give you that. And so these are the two competing narratives. Neither of them, as you can see in my description, value Black people in that analysis. If you don't inherently understand the culture in which you are indoctrinated in, you know, we have these ideas of Black history and white history, but like Black history is white history. If you don't understand 
um, redlining, if you don't understand the slave codes, if you don't understand the antebellum South, then you don't understand the prison industrial complex. So you don't have no right to talk about Black Lives Matter. You have no right to talk about policing in America because that's your history and my history too. And that's the lens from which we both come from. So if we don't understand our past, which is a, just a truism, we will never know where we are going. We are doomed to repeat it every summer. Now, we used to repeat it every 15 years in America. America was comfy with that pace. Every 15 or 20 years, we'd have a different racial reckoning, and things would seem to be elevating and moving along, not realizing that one group had realized that we don't know if we're okay with this and we're a dying demographic and we need to draw these other people along with us, and that another group was okay with what was happening as long as you didn't notice it. We didn't realize that those two competing narratives were what were eventually going to be our choices in 2020. But if you don't understand the things that led up to that, you can't learn from this situation as future leaders. You know, and I'm a sucker for the ELCA college systems. We develop good leaders, right? Here's the proof, right? Samantha and Mary. One leader was developed in one place, ends up going to another place. You know what I mean? Like that, that the proof's in the pudding, right? And in and, and these sort of like relationships, right? Mary learns from Samantha. Drew learns from everyone. Really the front lines of, of, of what I call proper liberal arts education with a socio-political matrix that is a little bit more open to at least outside influence and more of a global influence. You know, at the end of the day, though, if we don't understand where we come from, we will never get past what is happening now, right? And, 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 and the truth is you're singing to the choir of any generation after Gen X. Gen X, we are garbage. I just want to say I want to apologize that you listen to the music of the despised, the dispossessed, the queers, the freaks, and all of us who were outcasts, and you thought the rest of us in Gen X were like that. I'm, I'm going to give you some information that might be kind of hard for you to reconcile with some of the movies you love and some of the music you love. Most of us were Oakley-wearing bootlickers who absolutely allowed what you see happen in America environmentally politically, and with our policing system, and with the military-industrial complex, they let it happen. They high-fived while it happened. But we're very similar to the boomers in a lot of ways. So what I'm hearing is I need to break all of my dad's Steely Dan CDs in half. Oh my gosh. No, 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 Steely Dan's amazing. Do you even know, do you know where the name Steely, we can't talk about Yeah, I about do, I do. I don't yeah, know if we should say it on the podcast, but I'm aware. <laughs> I love subversive music that our parents listened to and didn't realize how subversive it was the whole time. So Lenny, I'm curious as, as we continue to engage in developing and development, we know that you've worked in redevelopment at Jehu's Table in New York and then now in Jubilee Collective. And so we're curious what the work of developing a community is like. It is not like anything you think it is. As my friend, the Reverend Nadia Bowles-Weber said on my installation, she said, basically, church planter is the title we give that we give the unemployable. So I am unemployable by the church. I do not last long in congregational systems. Change agents usually don't. Do you feel like you might be unemployable by the church? Well, that's okay, because the church is broken. So you might be a tent maker, right? So I'm a tent maker. Good luck to you. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you have to know the community. You have to be embedded in the community. So like JU's table, I was even just because I was black and like I come from a neighborhood that was similar to East New York, 
I was not from East New York. Yeah, you know, JU's table sat in the land of the Carnissi people. We always give them honor. We're so grateful for their continued witness in the New York area and continuing to tell the story of the Carnissi people. And it was in East New York, which pre-United States is where freed slaves lived. And so it was this weird place where indigenous and, and enslaved folk intermixed a lot with British culture, which meant that a lot of folks from the so-called West Indies ended up coming there. So there's this deep, deep, deep island culture, you know, lots of things that I was completely unprepared for, the differences and the, the stark conservatism. Uh, quite frankly, of being the first LGBTQIA affirming Black Lutheran church, I think, in all of New York City, if not the entire damn synod. And then being embedded in an area that was surrounded by three projects um, or NYCHA housing, right? We call them the Jets where I'm from. But being embedded in those three, you know, surrounded by three major ones and not knowing the individualized culture of each one of those. We, we had hundreds of thousands of people around us in various states of crisis and distress constantly. Um, people would go missing from our feeding and we'd be the only people who would ever put in missing reports for them. I mean, these were a lot of folks, not my congregants, but a lot of folks in the area were considered throwaway people. The congregation was mostly upwardly mobile, middle-class, like well-educated African-American folks whose church had been devastated by the economic impact on the black community around them and really did not reflect their witness at all. Their witness had been faithful. They had been constantly reaching out. They had been trying new things. They had been hiring new pastors. They had been preaching in new ways. They had tried all the things. And really this was a congregation that had just run out of gas. And so often in redevelopments, you walk into structures that had just run out of gas and had done a faithful witness, but can't let it go. They don't realize that that witness is killing them. So we had an incredible woman there who had been the secretary for 45 years. Um, they had not had a pastor for 14 years. And she had basically been carrying the worship service for 14 years. My goodness. And so I get there and the first thing I do is I let her go. And like people are furious with me. Furious, I mean, mad. I lost so much social capital, but I knew this job was killing her. I could just see it in her eyes. She was so spiritually heavy. Mm. She had felt like she was the only one keeping this little gem of Black Lutheran witness. And one of the first pastors to ever bring African diasporic liturgy to the Lutheran church had started there and went on to become the Bishop of Detroit. This place had a witness and she felt that if she dropped it, it would all disappear. So here she is into her seventies, coming in at six in the morning, trying to run a church on her own, paying herself out like maybe $5,000 for the year and then people getting mad about it, right? And so, so when you walk into a redevelopment, you'll run into these intensely socioeconomic, spiritual, psychological, and systemically racist situations that are full of patriarchy, queer phobia. Like redevelopment work is not for the faint of heart. And honestly, in that situation, in a place where I was responding to crisis, in a place where the subway didn't even take me to the church, I had to walk a mile and a half through the neighborhood, through two of the projects to even get there. And doing that work every day and walking around in collar and stopping and talking to everyone on the way and then spending all much time as I could up in, up in the projects and like getting to know everyone and then getting to know all the folks who were homeless and then handling all. I burned out in two and a half years. Thank God I ran into 
uh, Pastor Katrina and other folks. Um, my, my dean was amazing, Harriet Weber, the first woman ordained in the New York Synod. Um, and she will proudly tell you that through her very thick Bensonhurst accent, you know, tell you how you're scum for not loving the uh, Yankees and shit. And uh, those folks really kind of <laughs> no. kept me. Yeah, kind of like kept me alive. So that's redevelopment. When you get to development, which is what I'm doing at Jubilee Collective, it's a whole different set of problems. Because you have people who are turning to you. Most people who come early on in a church plant or a new launch or whatever word you want to use, right? It's all the mission start industrial complex, right? You, you have a lot of factors, right? The first thing is you have national denominational factors. They're always trying to figure out if they can use you for their media. Will this church make us seem more queer? Will this church make us seem more black? Will this church make us seem like we have life? Will this church, how can we market these people? Like as a developer, you have to realize that your money's attached to that. Like, you can't just ignore that. You can't just be like, I don't like the way the ELCA uses us and then doesn't really invest in us because guess what? They don't care. Mission developers before you and after you are going to have that same complaint. You have to think about your relationship with whatever larger denomination you're with. A lot of your funding's coming from that. Mine in this particular situation does not. Thus, I can be a little bit more clear about how I feel about things. I receive right now $18,000 from the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And I would love if they took it back because not only could I fundraise it very quickly, but it would give me a lot to write about on my blog. But at the end of the day, that's not what the ELCA wants to do either. They recognize life when life is happening even if they don't understand it. So I don't want to paint the denomination or the domestic mission unit or any of those folks involved in that incredible work as if they aren't incredibly investing. But you have to understand that there is this push-pull. They won't really understand you, particularly if you're doing something incredibly unique. If you're doing something that's BIPOC, they're not going to get it. If you're doing something that's queer, they're not going to get it. I sit on the board of RIC. We do all that work independently. The ELCA is not doing that. Queers in this church are doing that. We're doing that work. I do queer work in relationship with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Let's be clear. The only time this church has changed is when we've demanded that it change, mm. right? And the only reason 2009 happened is because they added youth to the councils. Let's not pretend that all of a sudden that, that you know, the church really realized in light of the confessions and scripture and the way that the Holy Spirit is moving that queer people should be should should be allowed inside. That's that's not what Mark Hansen said. When the vote happened, he said, "Don't clap, don't celebrate." And we have refused to celebrate queer people since that moment. Anyway, the other part is is that so you have that relationship, right? And then you have the stuff on the ground, right? And like so, I'm working with Messiah Lutheran Church. They're amazing. They went through a two year discernment process. They raised an endowment for me and said, we want to invite someone who's going to create a church we're not going to like. Most of us probably wouldn't go to and looks so different from us, people wouldn't even associate it with us most of the time. Think about what a faithful witness that is for a large suburban, white, middle to upper class church cruising. This is a church that had no reason to want to do something different. What they were doing was working. My point is, is that you have to have a good relationship with who's on the ground. For me, it's with my church. In most cases, it's with a synod. And you have to look at what is the synod's or what is the local leadership's vision for mission. Just because someone likes your idea doesn't mean you go there. Oh my God, no, don't do that to yourself, beloved. How have they intentionally invested in mission long-term? And then just go spend some time in the area. 
Make sure they pay you for six months to walk around and do nothing but go to the bar, buy people beers here in uh, Washington. It's like take people to the dispensary, like whatever it is, you know, take them to the to the library, take them out to eat, go to the park, get to know their kids, help them gardening, you know, help little ladies across the street, sit in the park all day and talk to all the folks who are like houseless. So you get to know them. Like, you know what I mean? Get to know all the local drug dealers. I happen to know them all now. So like I have a pass to do whatever I want late at night and not be bothered. Like all those things. And then you start to gather people around you. And you have to be open to the fact that the hardest thing about development is the only way you get the job is to paint an incredibly rich vision and realize that that whole vision is going to be thrown out within six months of you getting there. For most tent makers, that is a hard thing to wrap your head around because you walked in with this thing that you made and you know, and that's the thing. And that's the reason they called you, right? That's the real hard part to, to unhook yourself from. Well, they called me here for this unique vision. But when the people tell you they have a different vision, particularly the people that you gathered around you, you better change that stuff in a hurry and roll with the punches. So that's the big thing. Uh, always create good on-ramps and off-ramps, community um, organizing 101, meaning the first four years of a new church, don't no council seat should be more than a year. No position should be more than a year. You make it just part of the culture. You don't make it a big thing like, oh, I'm joining the launch team. Like, no. Just everyone switches positions. You know what I mean? Everyone's doing something different. We don't call ourselves a church uh, right now because I don't believe church will exist in 50 years in America. So we call ourselves a collective. And don't be afraid to gather around bold ideas. We gathered around three simple ideas. What if Jesus is anti-racist like we are? What if queer people need to be like moved beyond welcome and moved towards radical affirmation? And when they show up, we always follow their lead. And then the third thing is we want to create a space. We want to be Christians that Jesus would actually want to hang out with. So we want to create a space where Jesus would dance for joy. Jesus loved the party. So we always want to feel like a party. We always want to feel like a good time. We always want to feel like something you want to do. Because what most pastors forget and most uh, theology students forget and most really dedicated like lay folks forget is no one thinks about church all day except for us. So try not to make it suck. Fair enough. <laughs> you have done a lot of work and have been very vocal about calling for reparations, especially with yeah. the LCA church. And I'm curious how that witness and that message ties into your personal vocation. Yeah, well, let's talk about the, 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 the scuttlebutt for a second, right? The scuttlebutt is I'm having a Kanye moment. I've literally lost my fucking mind. Um, <laughs> someone go get him. Is he okay? Right? Like, let's just put it on the table, right? It seemed very out of character for me to just suddenly strike at the presiding bishop, to suddenly strike. And, and I had been talking about these things for a long time. If you've been listening to me, I made a movie about it in 2018. I wrote a book about it in 2019. I spent all of 2019 talking about it at public events and every available opportunity. This is all part of the larger narrative of what I've been talking about the entire time I've been a part of the church. But I got my hands dirty for once. And it seemed really mean. And white people don't like it when you're mean. I also think that no one is in a position to judge the organizing tactics of any black leader right now in America. And just because I didn't choose to use respectability as my weapon does not mean that it, neither of them are valid weapons in the battle for freedom. And they are weapons. Beloved thought, idea, word. I'm just a kid with a Twitter account and a blog. 
And so what's interesting when we enter these conversations, because I know you'll have some rostered leaders who will look at this, who are very upset by the way I acted and feel like I've acted completely out of sorts and out of character. And there really should be consequences for someone like me. One of the things I'll say, uh, this is my last call probably in the ELCA. I'll probably launch this church for the next seven to 10 years and I'll probably move on to something else. So, you know, you'll get your wish. Just be patient. I had for a long time considered the Evangelical Lutheran Church a key piece to the battle for collective liberation in this country. And I can no longer, in good conscience, recommend it as a tradition or a place that actually cares about the people, particularly Black peoples. I can no longer say that it's a place that's concerned about. Am I? Yes. Am I a member of that church? Yes. Do I believe in its confessions? Yes. Do I honor its traditions? Yes. But at large, we have little concern for folks right now. Mm. I'm not talking about abstract concepts of us putting wells all around the world. That's fucking great. We do that. I'm not talking about the goats we send out. God damn it. I send out a goat every year. <laughs> I got my stupid letter downstairs. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about actually being engaged in the conversation for the battle for this republic, which is at stake. No matter which way November 3rd goes, and this has nothing to do, I think, I hope I've made it abundantly clear, I'm not partisan, but no matter what happens on November 3rd, the idea of the peaceful transfer of power is now on the table, and that is the forming principle of your republic. And I say your republic because I don't, even though I consider myself a patriot and a defender of this republic, I certainly don't have all of its rights privileges. I certainly do, I'm not able to engage in all the things. Reparations is a last ditch effort to start the conversation. If you read the next part of the book, I suggest that reparations is the beginning of a National Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And that's what this country needs. And that's what this church needs. Start to do the real work on reparations and start with our own. Why don't we just give reparations to the Lutheran church and the Lutheran ministers, the black Lutheran churches, the black Lutheran ministers, and use those communities and those folks by uplifting them to uplift the communities around them. And the fact that there will be dozens, dozens of African descent ministers retiring in this tradition in the next 10 years with no retirement to speak of because we watched the economic intentional sabotage of the black community and did nothing and then think that that's a, a, a prophetic witness, it's pathetic. All I ever suggest is we start with our own and everyone gets so upset. Oh my God, why should we take care of our own? I love how I or any black organizer or any black person, the moral impetus is upon us the entire time. No one ever holds Elizabeth Eaton the conference of bishops or any of our leaders to the same standards they hold to me, they hold me to ever. Lenny, you're not being kind. They're constantly unkind. Lenny, you're not being fair and giving everyone a chance to talk. They never let everyone sit at the table. Lenny, you're uh, using uh, tactics that seem a little bit dirty. They always do that. And then they're like, well, you have a responsibility with your platform. You don't think the presiding bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America has a responsibility with her platform while black people in America are under the worst oppression we've been under in almost 50 years? I just wanna put all that on the table. Mm -hmm. That I'm being held to a standard that is different than our leaders mm. because I'm black and loud. And there's an inherent racism in that. Are we still the Lutheran Church? 
and you're mad because a minister is publicly posting his thoughts and reflections on the wider church? Have we gone so far astray that that is something you can't do in the Lutheran church anymore? It's mind-blowing, beloved. To calm down from my passion, I will say to you that I believe that us leading the way on reparations is the only way to start to do the soul surgery to adjust this forsaken country. Mm. That it's a way for all of us to be involved in the process. Where a church puts its money is where its heart is. If you show me a church's budget, I will tell you where they believe the kingdom of God is. And for a long time, the evangelical church in America thought the kingdom of God needed to be developed abroad. And I understand that perspective. I truly do. But we need it here now. There are people living in those conditions here every day. And you pass them as if we don't exist. And by readjusting the economic impact, it gives teeth to our spiritual statements. It gives teeth to our social statements. It gives teeth to our bishop's proclamations on Twitter. I'm trying to give her teeth. I'm trying to give her something to work with. Because black people ain't trying to read your 800 word statement about how you're gonna dismantle 400 years of oppression. We want to see real actionable things. And I'm not alone. This is happening in communities across the country. People are having these discussions with their police departments. They are having discussions with their local uh, legislators. They are having these discussions um, in schools. They are having these discussions in town halls. And, the, and, and for the evangelical Lutheran church in America to honestly believe that they could not be involved in those things, that they could not be a part of it, that they you know, could somehow be exempt and take this pious middle road. Oh, no, no. This whole country is going to have a reckoning around this. And all I've ever done has been kind enough to try and prepare people who don't want to hear it about it. And what have I gained from it? I don't know what y'all think writers make, like cash-wise. Drew just signed a book contract. He knows. It's not much. Right. It's, it's, you, you, you know, what am I gaining from this traction on my blog? I've had a blog for years that's had traction. What am I gaining? What I'm gaining is my PTSD is through the roof. My anxiety is through the roof. My body works all over the place, right? And why am I reacting this way? Let me put it in context for you. You know, I've just spent 130 days being shot at, gassed, and attacked by the Portland Police Bureau. Perhaps my perspective on where we are in the country is a little bit different than yours. I actually watch federal troops be flexed by an overzealous executive branch and watch citizens who are under my spiritual care literally in front of me be kidnapped by unmarked vehicles, like some sort of Gestapo state. So perhaps my perspective is a little bit different than some of our conference of bishops that have been quarantining in their homes. Perhaps I've seen a different side of America while they've been inside. Can I ask you a question about that? Because I don't, yeah. don't want to lose it. What does the church need to learn from the protesters, from the protest leaders, from, from the things that you have been seeing on the ground? What do we need to learn uh, you need to start, you need to put $10,000 aside in your budget uh, right now. Um, and that $10,000 has to be for bulletproof vest. It has to be for gas masks. When the protests start in your area, all the gas masks are going to sell out. So you have to hit eBay and then you have to figure out the compromises and the right filters. And then if your church is situated near the protest, if you could be a place where people could use the bathroom and where they can wash the tear gas from their eyes or maybe like recover from a rubber bullet wound, that would be great. The last thing, which I know can be risky for some congregations, so I'm not trying to tell everyone to do that, but 
I would say you start a clergy witness team and you start a layperson witness team. You guys buy yourself some sort of vest that marks you as clergy witnesses and that you go there and you take people to the front lines. You no longer argue with people about what's happening on the ground. You say, I'm going to take you to death. And you take them and you give them a bulletproof vest, you give them a clergy vest, you give them a gas mask and, and you take them and you let them see how the state is acting. It's no longer, it's all about witnessing nowadays. It's not about me telling you, like you have to go see. That's the biggest thing you can learn. And uh, the indications from the Biden-Harris camp is that they are going to respond to the cry Black Lives Matter with state violence. Biden has said over and over again that if he is elected, he would send in whatever it takes, the necessary troops to shut everything down. He just didn't say federal troops because he thinks that would be a constitutional crisis, right? But he'll, he'll, he'll send in, he'll flex some sort of troop. And now that he's seen that you can flex border troops to the interior of the United States, because remember, they use border troops, right. DHS, right? Which is what happens in failed states. In failed states is when the Border Patrol starts enforcing laws on the citizens within the interior. I mean, all our friends from South America will tell us this, but we don't listen to them. In fact, we're locking them up on cages on the border so they can't get in and tell us. It's all a very frustrating situation. So I would say that that's the biggest thing is start some sort of witnessing, hook up with the people who are in the area who like look like they know what they're doing and just say, hey, we're here from the clergy witness team. We're looking for the ACLU or the National Guild of Lawyers. We want to be witnesses of record. So when this is all over, someone actually shows up for your court cases. And mm -hmm. then you start bringing people up front and start witnessing. Witnessing is the transfer is the transformative thing, right? That's what being an apostle is, right? One who is sent out, one who is witnessed, right? I was going to say, there's a real connection here between witnessing in our faith and witnessing in, well, what is our faith lived on the ground in every single day? You build up what you need to provide safe access to that for people who would normally not be able to see it, right? People who would normally not go to a Black Lives Matter, like, you know, protest or direct action of any kind. And then you provide, you know, the gas mask, the, the bulletproof vest, and you're going to need it. I'm not exaggerating. You're going to need it if you're going to do this. And then you take them up front so they can see. So they can see a riot declared for no reason. So they can see what I saw, which was federal agents targeting the ACLU. And then they targeted, they realized us clergy were witnesses of record. They started targeting us with rubber bullets. I'm not talking about in the general sense. I meant, I mean, literally targeting us from a sniper position with rubber bullets and shooting us. And at the end of the day, reparations and these sort of economic impact actions are some of the very first things we can do. And I believe that the church should lead the way. Why should the church lead the way? Because it's our job to redeem the soul of America. That's why we're here. And if you don't believe it's your job to redeem the soul of America, well, then you don't like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. You don't like any of the, the witness of the civil rights era. And I got to tell you something. I honestly believe that at times the soul of America is beyond redemption. And I know many black people feel that way, too. I just happen to be someone still engaged in that project. And in the project to redeem the soul of America, there are certain things that are going to have to happen. The first thing is we're going to have to even the playing field. It's going to have to be some sort of national reparations for anyone who's a descendant of an enslaved person in this country, period. The second thing that's going to happen is we're going to have to have that, a truth and reconciliation committee. And if the church could do those two things first and show the world that it's possible, if we advertise it everywhere, Listen, they're mad at me right now, but once this endowment starts rolling and there's a little bit of media around it, right, and it becomes the largest national reparations fund ever, I think, right? It's like the, it would be the largest one for specifically for black peoples, I think, ever, if we got the 32 million. 
Mm. Not entirely sure, but certainly one of them, right, in the top 10. And I'm not in charge of it. I'm handing it off. It's just a goddamn win for them. And, and the sad thing about this church, this church can't imagine itself without white supremacy so bad that it won't even take a win. And here's an example of that. After churchwide assembly, right, we became a sanctuary denomination. Front page of the Washington Post. Oh, man, the Lutherans are really doing it, y'all. The Lutherans learned their lesson from Germany, and they're now going to stand with the people in the camps. But did we, though? No, we didn't, because every bishop in the entire country put out a both-sidism letter the next day. This denomination is so addicted to white supremacy, it can't even take a win. We just don't know how to do it. We don't know how to be on the side of righteousness because we don't know what evil looks like. Mm. So we conflate a niceness and peace and security with righteousness. No one ever comes to you and offers you peace and security in the name of righteousness. We are certainly blessed to have spent this time with the Reverend Lenny Duncan, with Lenny in this holy hard moment in time in 2020. And by the time you're hearing this, this will be the third time that Lenny has been a part of our community at Capital University. He was a part of a webinar on the first Tuesday in December and then preached at Capital Worship the very next day. And if you want to hear about those things, you can follow us on social media and you will be able to find those interactions as well. Hear those conversations, hear the powerful sermon for Advent one that Lenny gave us. But I want to dive into the things that he has brought us today in this conversation, and in particular, in the ways that development is related. One of the things he said that has struck me to the bone is understanding the culture that we are indoctrinated in, that we have been developed in a certain kind of way, that there are things that we hold to be true that have not been proven true, and in fact, are false, are against God, are anti-Christ. We need to develop new resilience, new cultures even, to have a new day for ourselves and others. This is the such important work that we have to do, that Lenny and others are leading us in as church. So much of what Lenny has shared has pointed us to this reality, that we have been indoctrinated in ways. For instance, to be offended at quote-unquote bad words but not at the fact that he and others were targeted with rubber bullets by federal police, that we're more offended at language than the death of black and brown bodies, not just bodies, but people, not just people, but God's images, that we question the violence they experienced less than the violence of a word. And so we need to be developed in a new way. And that's the other powerful component of this, friends. Just because we have developed one way doesn't mean we can't develop in another. That is the work of pursuing anti-racism, of admitting the ways that we have been developed, and then pursuing another way, pursuing a holy way, pursuing the kingdom of God, the reign of mercy. That is the work of pursuing reparations, repairing the damage done by new and different investments, economically, relationally, politically. And that kind of development is also essential for forming our vocations. After all, anti-racism is a vocation. We are called to the vocation of anti-racism. And that means forming, developing new skills, new habits, new opportunities, new knowledge, new wisdom, listening to new leaders, voices that we have ignored or suppressed. 
and silenced for so long. So developing in a new way also means changing the way that we do things now, reshaping the way that we learn, the way that we engage media, the way that we purchase, the way that we invest. But we can develop our vocations of anti-racism. We can develop into the specific vocations that you are called to in your careers, in your family lives, in your citizenship. And I think that's where the holy word of community that Lenny brought us today is so poignant because it takes a cast of thousands for this to happen. Lenny spoke to his development and the development of the work that he's a part of as not just his alone, but the cast of thousands that brought him, that shaped him, that invested in him and his own work as a part of that community. Your vocational shaping, the shaping of your identity, the production of your purpose is the same. It takes a cast of thousands to develop who you are now and to develop who God is calling you to be next. So dear friends, don't go about this alone. That's why we aren't having these conversations on this podcast alone, because who God has called us to be now benefits from who God has called others to be now and who God is making us into next. How God is shaping us for the world next relates to how God is shaping others for that world as well. So as you develop your skills, as you practice, as you invest in yourself, also develop others' skills, also invest in others and receive the development that they offer, receive the investment that they give. For what God is calling us to now is the work of development, specifically in this conversation, developing as an anti-racist church, as an anti-racist society, and also developing anti-racist ways of being pastors and siblings, and cooks, and bankers, and politicians, and friends, and citizens of these United States, or wherever you are listening. So dear ones, heed the wisdom of our partner in development, Lenny, and find a new way to not be indoctrinated, but instead to be invigorated for the work of God's reign. Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode was recorded remotely over Zoom. Funding for Now Next is thanks to the generous Philip N. Knudsen Endowment and Lutheran Campus Ministry. Our co-hosts are Drew Tucker, Mary Claire Hunkel, and Sammy DiBiasso. Our podcast producer is yours truly, and our seaworthy theme music, Fiddle DD, is by Shane Ivers.